Starting in chapter 2, verse 19, which, we're, uh, which we read today, it says, So then, so then, therefore, after all of that, the conclusion that I am leading you to is, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then, if you look at as chapter 3 begins, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you. And you notice that, that long dash at the end of verse 1, because everything that follows verse 1 up till verse 13 is sort of a, an ellipsis. It's a, it's a parenthetical statement. He's kind of wanting to shore up some of the things that he's already said and one of the things that he wants to know. But he's saying, For this reason... I bow my knees before the, look verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The reason that I'm praising God, the reason that I am praying for you is what I just said. And what did he just say is, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And that's why I'm praying for you. That's what I'm praying for you. And that's why I'm praying for you. That's what's moving me to pray for you is this that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're being built together into this household of God, being built together into a temple, uh, resting on Jesus the cornerstone. That's, can you, do you feel the force of that? Do you feel that that's, the, that's what he's been moving up to? And we're reaching the, the peak of it, and from here he starts to move downward and starts to uh, say, okay, now that's, that's the conclusion. He's gonna, there's going to be a, kind of another crescendo at the end of uh, chapter 3 as he begins to... to uh, Again, pray for the people he's writing to. And really, um, he's writing to us and he's praying for us. Um, if you don't feel that as I read it, um, then what you can do is you can, you can go later and you can kind of, you can track the joining words, the words like, so then, and therefore, and for this reason. You follow the, and, and, and because. You follow those types of words and you, you'll be able to see that everything is kind of pointing uh, to this moment. So, what is this? What's he getting at here? What is this pinnacle of what he's saying in chapters 1 to 3? He's saying that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens in the household of God. He's saying that there is a cost associated with us being built together in this way. And he's saying that we're becoming one, but when we become one, we're not being lost. Um, and he's saying that we are a dwelling place for God. And each of those four things, um, that, there is, uh, that we are not strangers and aliens to each other, that there is a cost to that, um, that becoming one is not being lost, is not being destroyed, and that we are becoming a dwelling place for God. Uh, each of those four things um, kind of has its very own uh, sense, its very own force. All right. So when he says that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Uh, I was glad that we sang the song uh, this morning, if you were here at the beginning, No Longer Strangers. Um, the reason I'm glad that we sang that um, is because I, uh, everything that that song is saying is true, and I like it, and I'm glad that we sing it. Um, but it's maybe important to realize that that phrase, no longer strangers, 
um, in that song, it's, it's going to make it about us being reconciled with God. We're no longer strangers from God, is what the song is saying. But what, what Paul is saying here is not that we're no longer strangers from God, but that we're no longer strangers from each other. Now, it's because we're no longer strangers from God that we're no longer strangers from each other, but this is what he's emphasizing, that we're not strangers and aliens from each other. Um, and yet, um, we are often tempted to live as if we are strangers and aliens from each other. Um, strangers and aliens from uh, the kingdom of God. Strangers and aliens from the household of God. Um, we're tempted to live that way. Um, you know, an alien, uh, a foreigner, another translation, a, a resident alien, a, a person who is... Um, the equivalent of a green card holder is the metaphor that he's using. A person who is living in a country but was not born there actually has their citizenship and allegiance in another country. They may live there for a very long time. And we actually, like, we have that. We're very familiar with this concept. Um, we know green card holders. We know um, people who are not green card holders uh, and yet are resident aliens. Um, and that's a, that's a very different experience from being a citizen. Everything's harder. It's harder to, uh, to get work. Um, it's harder to uh, purchase property. Uh, it's harder to, get a, uh, to uh, maintain a job. It's uh, harder to put down roots. It's harder to know where you stand. If there's uh, a war between your home country and the country you're living in, as a resident alien, everybody starts to wonder where your allegiance is. You yourself are going to struggle to know where your allegiance is. I've been living here for 35 years, you might say, um, and yet... Uh, my home country. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a third-generation Italian-American, and if we were to go to war with Italy, a small part of me would still feel a little bit of, oh, I kind of want Italy to win. Uh, but and this is my home. I am a citizen, and I was born here. My father was born here. Uh, you know, how much more for someone who actually is a resident alien? Would you feel that conflict? Do you, would you feel that tension between your home um, and where you're a resident alien. Um, you don't get to vote. Um, you don't have all of the rights. You don't have all of the privileges of a citizen. You don't have all the responsibilities of a citizen either. Um, and some of us approach the church that way. Some of us feel that way in the church. Some of us may... Uh, feel as if the church is not quite home. Some of us may feel as if uh, uh, we may not quite be citizens. Um, by the way, we're having Discover CTK uh, on uh, the 8th this Saturday. And uh, if you are interested in becoming a member of Christ the King, it would be a great uh, thing for you to do. If you just want to know more about what we do, uh, that would be great to attend. So let me know. Talk to Logan. Um, but, you know, being a, a resident alien rather than a citizen ha has its drawbacks. It's got its benefits. You're freer. You might feel like I can, I can move around. But you know, that may not be a benefit either. Right? There actually might be the benefit of, of, of feeling uh, fastened and connected, of knowing uh, where your loyalty is, of knowing uh, where your allegiance is, and knowing that, that you have not just uh, the responsibilities but the rights uh, of a citizen. You know, you get, to vote, you get to vote on what we do with our budget. Um, if we were to ever uh, call a new minister, 
um, you would get to vote on that. Um, you know, and much more intimately, and this is the second metaphor, um, rather than a stranger, you'd be a member of the family. And so there's those, those pair of metaphors. Not an alien, but a fellow citizen. Not a stranger, but a member of the family, a member of the household. When I was a kid, we used to, my parents used to take in strays a lot, people. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they moved from Long Island uh, to upstate New York in 1977, and um, their, their little house in, uh, in East Islip, New York, translated into 220 acres um, and, a, a, and, you know, three different buildings um, and lots of apartments and lots of bedrooms uh, in upstate New York. Um, and so they, they used that to great effect. Um, they took in um, uh, uh, refugees from Laos um, during that crisis, um, and, and just, <laughs> it seemed like there was always somebody when I was a little kid who was staying in some extra bedroom. Um, and they would have dinner with us, and they would have chores, and they would have responsibilities. Um, they would pray with us as a family when we prayed, but uh, they were never a member of the family, and it's a very different thing, isn't it? Uh, if you've ever been in that situation, you've ever been staying with someone long-term, um, that family can treat you as well as they want. They could treat you uh, in every way like a member of the family, and yet uh, you know that you're not quite a member of the family. And what he's saying is don't, you, you don't have to live that way. You're a member of the family. It doesn't matter what your racial background is. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic background is. You're a member of the family. Um, and don't treat each other like not members of the family. You know, we gotta watch uh, the way that we uh, treat each other. We gotta pay attention to it. Um, we gotta uh, not make each other feel like not members of the family. When they are, your person sitting next to you is a member of the family. They may make a lot more money than you. They may make a lot less money than you. And you've got to pay attention to the way you make them feel about that. We're members of the family. We're members of God's household. You know, there's people that stayed with us. We loved them and they loved us. But we always knew that eventually they would leave. And they did. Some of them were still in touch with. Some of them not. Some of those people, I, I don't even know their last name. I wouldn't be able to find them if I wanted to. Um, in all kinds of ways, we're tempted to treat each other like strangers and aliens. I mean, the obvious one is immigration, isn't it? Uh, you know, and you know. Let me just quickly say, right? It's the law. Right, we have we have laws. You know, we have laws about resident aliens, and people are supposed to follow procedures. And if they they come with a green card and it expires, or they have a, a temporary visa and it expires, they're supposed to leave. Um, it is the law of the land, and yet. Uh, uh, if they are a Christian, um, we as Christians are obligated to treat them like our brothers and sisters. And if your brother or sister were in this country and their visa expired and they wanted to stay, um, what would you do? How would you respond to them? Um, and if they're not Christians, uh, what we're obligated to do is love them sacrificially and show them the love of Christ. 
And what does that look like? What does the love of Christ look like to someone who's a resident alien? Okay, the law of the land is what it is. Um, but as the scriptures tell us, uh, sometimes human laws are wrong, and we ought to obey God rather than man. Um, this is kind of a, a, a striking example of this um, in, in the not-too-distant history uh, during World War II, uh, during the 1930s, um, as Germany was, was expanding its empire through Europe. Um, and even in Germany, there were Christians who said, the law of the land was that, that Jews had to go live in the ghetto and then eventually um, go to concentration camps. That was the law of the land. And yet Christians knew that that was wrong. And there were Christians who took their own lives in their hands. And, and some of them paid with their own lives for this choice to hide Jewish people in their homes. Uh, they disobeyed the law of the land because the law of the land was wrong. And sometimes the law of the land is wrong, and sometimes we have to obey God rather than the law of the land. Um, but I'm going to stop talking about that, because if, if I made that the point of this sermon, we live in Boston, and most of us would all just feel, feel pretty good about ourselves. Yeah, we live in Boston. Uh, you know, our mayor said that, that undocumented immigrants can stay in City Hall if they want to. Uh, you know, that's the city that we are, and we could just feel really good about ourselves um, and ignore the ways in which we make other people feel like they're not part of the family. And then we, we try to make other people feel like they're not part of, uh, they're not a fellow citizen with us. And who are those people? Who are the people that we, as, uh, as enlightened Bostonians, exclude from citizenship in the household of God, citizenship in God's family, membership in God's family? You know, we do it based on politics. Um, we do it based on how much money we have. We do it without thinking about it. You know, I don't want people who voted for that person in my house. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to know about them. They are terrible people. If they could have voted for that person or that person, they are a terrible person and I don't want anything to... But if they're a Christian, they are fellow citizens with you in the kingdom of God, and they are family members with you in God's family. Um, if they make more money than you, less money than you, they are, you're still your family member. Uh, and we can't do that. We can't exclude those people from citizenship, from citizenship. We are no longer strangers and aliens. But we are uh, fellow citizens and members together of the household of God. Okay. And part of that uh, is exposing that there is a cost to our being built together into this temple from God. For being our being, for all, when all things uh, are made one, there is a cost to it. It's not free. Um, if, a, if a building is being built, if a temple is being built, you don't get trees just don't become part of it, okay? Um, we have people who are builders uh, in this room and in our church, and you can, you know, ask them about how it works. Um, but I think it's pretty obvious. You have to cut down the trees. 
And then you have to mill them into lumber. And then you have to saw the lumber into the right length. And then you have to hammer and nail it. And all of that happens uh, to, to totally uh, irrespective of the tree's desires. Um, I mean, that sounds like a painful process. And if, it's, if you're building with rocks, they have to be chopped out of the quarry, and they have to be smashed and bashed and crushed and chiseled and hammered to be the right shape, and they have to be brought to a place where they're going to be put together. It's a painful process. Being built together is costly to us. Uh, and the builder doesn't care about the tree's desires. The builder doesn't care about the stone's desires. The builder has a vision, and the builder is making what he wants to make, and the trees and the stones don't get anything to say about it, but when it's done, those trees can go, look what I am a part of. I am now a part of this beautiful temple. These rocks can be like, I, I used to just be out in a quarry somewhere. I used to just be part of a cliff, but now I'm part of this beautiful temple and I'm covered in gold and jewels. And that brings us to the, the third point, that becoming one is not becoming lost. Right? That cost, uh, that, that thing that happens to us as we are uh, built together. And by the way, uh, some of you are experiencing that as you are becoming and have become part of this household here. Uh, some of us have come from places that we expected to go back to. Some of us have uh, moved to Boston that we thought it was going to be temporary. We thought it was going to be two years, three years. Maybe it was going to be for school. But now you're, you're buying property. Um, now you're taking jobs that you didn't think you'd be taking. Uh, now you're uh, doing things that you didn't think you'd be doing. And you're, because you're, you're finding yourself part of this family. You're finding yourself citizens of this kingdom. And you don't want to leave. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a thing that happened to you. You had a plan, um, but there was a builder who had a bigger plan and a better plan. And you're becoming aware of that, and you're going, you know what, this is actually amazing. Look what God is doing to me. Look what God, that, I mean, that's, that's how I got here. I mean, what, four years ago? No, six, six years ago, when Logan was first talking about coming down here, and I was a member in Christ the King in Cambridge, and I was just like, maybe I'll move down there and, and help you out for a little while, thoroughly expecting that I'd just be going, continue going to Cambridge. Um, but man, God builds something. And here we are, six years later. You know, many things thoroughly unexpected, and yet beautiful. So as we become one, uh, we're not lost. And that's a, you know, uh, do you remember Pirates of the Caribbean 3? <laughs> I'm ashamed to utter that sentence out loud. However, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean 3, that's the one with Davy Jones, like the squid-faced guy, uh, and he's got his ship, and the sailors on the ship, if you remember, uh, the longer they're on the ship, they start to grow barnacles. Um, they start, and they slowly, if they're on the, you know, it's this ghost ship, and they, they kind of slowly, the longer they're there, they kind of get absorbed into the ship. You know, and there's places, if I remember correctly, there's places in the, on the boat where you, you know, the characters will walk by and there's just like this kind of face 
in the side of a wall, just kind of sleepy, sitting there. It was a person who had been a, a, a sailor and eventually just kind of slowly became part of the boat. And it's grotesque. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's horrifying to watch that happen. You think that this person is, this person is dying. Uh, they're, they're losing their individuality. They're, in a sense, they're ceasing to exist as they become absorbed into this boat, and it's kind of awful. Uh, uh, It's only a PG-13 movie, but it kind of, (laughs) like it's a little bit of a, it gives you a little bit of that horror movie feeling um, if you you think about it and you look at what's happening. Um, And that is not what Christianity uh, is doing. That's not what God is doing as he is building us together into one. That's not what God is doing as he is making all things one in Christ. Uh, for some religions, losing your individuality and losing your sense of self are actually the highest goal. Uh, you know, for uh, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, the, 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 the metaphysical belief is that there's really only one spirit and it's sort of an act of spiritual violence that individuals exist. It's bad. And the goal of meditation and the goal of, of reincarnation is to eventually ascend to the point where you get to rejoin uh, that, uh, that one spirit. Um, in this country, the transcendentalists uh, believed a similar thing. Uh, that's Ralph Waldo Emerson and uh, Henry David Thoreau and those guys. Um, they believe in this thing called the oversoul. Uh, and they believe that individuals were broken off of the oversoul. And it's, and it's wrong. It's, a, it's perverse that there should be individuals. Um, uh, there's a movement uh, in, in secular Buddhism that believes a similar thing. They don't believe in a soul, but they, but they say, well, look, if we, we, we believe in science, and scientifically, if all you do is look at the material, there's really no such thing as an individual. They say, look, it's just, it's just matter, it's just dirt and water put together in a particular way with electricity, um, and it's an illusion to say that there's an individual. Um, it's, it's perverse that we would perceive ourselves as, as separate from one another. And so secular Buddhism uses the same tools as Buddhism, meditation, to try to break down the perception that you're an individual. And the whole goal is to stop thinking of yourself as an individual and be absorbed into this one consciousness. Um, if a drop of water enters the ocean, which is, which is a, a, a metaphor from some of these religions, you got to realize that that drop of water ceases to exist. It dies. Uh, but that is n- not uh, what Christianity means. It's not what this book means when it talks about all things becoming one in Christ. And it's not what this book means um, when it says that we are being built together into a temple. This is not in a way that destroys our individuality. It feels like it sometimes. It is costly, but the promise is that on the other side of that, death is resurrection. That on the other side of that uh, loss is something gained. That on the other side of that transformation, you become a person still, but the real you. The individual that you are now uh, is, as parts of the Bible say, is crucified with Christ. 
and it's painful, and it feels like dying, and in a way it is dying. But the promise is that with Christ we are raised. And that's, if you're not a Christian, I understand that that's a, that might be a, a little bit of a brain job. That might feel strange to think about. Um, but we do experience life that way sometimes, don't we? If you think about, if I think about uh, who I was when I was 17, who I was when I was 12, um, it's not crazy, it's not a weird use of language for me to say, I'm just a different person than I was. And through a lot of painful processes, the kid that I was, the immature, self-righteous, arrogant jerk that I was, uh, died. Um, and a man replaced him. The boy died, and a man replaced him. You think about yourself as a child. The little girl that you were is gone. And a woman is in her place. Um, if you remember who you were back then, I think you might, you might realize that you're very different. Um, and, man, adolescence is terrible. <laughs> And that process of growing up is painful. And, and, and as a parent, if, you, if your children are growing, uh, you experience that. I, uh, you know, Facebook puts it in your face. Uh, you know, somebody, there was, a, there was a memory that went by of when my daughter Hada was three, or maybe four. She had these pudgy little arms, little dimple elbows, and, and like, I miss that little girl. She's going to be seven in a couple of months. It's not that long ago. But I miss her. Uh, but in her place is another little girl, a bigger little girl, who is delightful, who uh, teaches me things, who, who knows me and knows what I like to the point where she... Have you seen Kubo and the Two String on Netflix? She, she saw this movie on Netflix, and she said to me, Dad, I saw this movie on Netflix. It's called Kubo and the Two Strings, and I want to watch it with you because you're going to love it. And she was right. <laughs> I did. I loved it. And I love that. And as much as I miss the little girl, I love the new girl. It's a, it, it, something gets lost for something else to come into being. And that's what Christianity means, is we are, as you pay the price of being hammered and nailed and carved and sawn, uh, the people that, that you know in this church who you don't quite care for, some of them uh, sometimes stand in where I'm standing and talk to you about things like this, you may not like me very much. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an acquired taste. Um, but we can love each other and as we pay the price of doing that, something dies. And on the other side of it, what we find is, this is who I was always supposed to be. You think about yourself as a man or as a woman, and you think about yourself as a little boy or a little girl, and you think, yeah, it was painful, but this was right. This was who I was always supposed to be. This is who I always, in a sense, this is who I always was, just trying to become. Just trying to come into being. And now I have. And that's what, that's what, in a much more profound way, that's what we will all say after God's building project is complete and we have grown up into this temple for the Lord. 
this dwelling place for God. Right? You might have to give up some of your desires to become part of this temple. You might have to give up control over your money. You might have to give up some of your tastes. You might have to give up some of your culture and heritage. Some of us have done that uh, very thing to great cost. You might have to give up some of your dreams, but God gives back. He's not going to give you the same stuff, but you're going to be somebody different and you're going to say, this was who I was supposed to be. This is who I actually, this is who I always was. I just didn't know it. This is right. This is the real me. Becoming one, it's not, we're not absorbed into the side of the ship and die. We're not a drop of water going to the ocean and being obliterated. Uh, we're being transformed. We're becoming part of something bigger and becoming who we as individuals were always supposed to be. Okay, and so finally, the passage is saying that what we are becoming together is a dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of God. And you know, the, the important question that I would like you to, to ask as we think about that is why does it say that Jesus is the cornerstone? Why does Jesus have to be the cornerstone uh, of this building, of this temple, of this dwelling place of God? Okay. One of the reasons that I think this is the pinnacle of uh, this um, first three chapters uh, is uh, that this language of our being a temple and a dwelling place of God is one of the Maybe it is one of, if not the very uh, dominant theme of the Bible itself. That even the concept of covenant, I think, which is such a powerful and huge concept in biblical theology, as you analyze the narrative of Scripture, covenant is an enormous concept. But even covenant, I think, is actually in service to this idea of us becoming a dwelling place of God, that the promise in the very beginning of the Bible, if you you read Genesis 1, and, you, and you, you, you read it in the context of the literature of that day. Uh, the thing that emerges is that all of these parallels and all of this poetry and all of this description of God and the days and his spirit hovering um, and pronouncing it is good, uh, God is building the cosmos itself as a temple for himself. With and This is maybe the, the linchpin, the final thing that you would do if you were building a temple is put an image of the God that you were going to be worshiping in the middle of the temple. And so the final thing that God does in Genesis uh, chapter 1 is that he sets up an image of himself, humanity, uh, for us to be his representation uh, in the cosmos so that he can dwell in it and be glorified in it and dwell with us. And then the Garden of Eden itself, this walled garden, again, with the human beings uh, at the center of it, the image of God. Uh, it's a temple where God is to be worshipped. It's a temple where God can dwell with his people. And so when uh, our first parents committed sin and broke that covenant, and failed as representatives of God, failed as representations of God, God comes to them in judgment. This is, these are big concepts, but just very quickly, in Genesis 3.8, right, if you're familiar with the beginning of the Bible, you know the 
God said, don't eat from this tree, and then they ate from the tree, and then God shows up in Genesis 3.8 and says, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And I want to say, uh, you got to translate that a little differently. The vo- they, they heard the voice of the Lord traversing in the garden in the spirit of the day. All of those images are God coming in judgment. He knows what they have done, and he's coming in judgment. And it's like when you're a little kid, and you're maybe playing Super Mario Brothers 3 uh, for too long, and your mom comes home, and <laughs> you make that, you know, like you that panic feeling. Oh my, oh no, she's back. Scram. You know, you're familiar with that feeling of the... <laughs> I'm sorry if you're listening to this on a, uh, in the, the podcast, but so you can't see the face I'm making. But you've probably made that face um, when you were a little kid, um, and you were doing something you shouldn't have been doing, and one of your parents walked in, and suddenly you were aware of them. Uh, or you may have made that face internally when you, know, when you were at work, and you, know, you snuck a bite of some food uh, that, was, you know, that, that wasn't for you, and they, you know, notice that someone is there. Your boss is there. You're caught. You know, you may have made that face at work um, when you're browsing on your computer, something that you shouldn't be browsing, and suddenly you're aware that your boss is right behind you. Right? That's the, that's Adam and Eve as they hear the voice of God walking into the garden in the spirit of the day. They're panicked and they hide. And so the dwelling place of God has become something that cannot be a dwelling place for God. Because we panic and we hide because we do wrong. God's plan was always to dwell with us, but we do bad stuff and it makes us afraid of him. And so he can't dwell with us because we panic and hide. He can't dwell with us because we uh, taint and poison the holy temple that he made for us. One way that we try to hide is we try to pretend that he doesn't exist. Um, We either pretend that he doesn't exist or we know that he does exist, um, but we pretend that he doesn't really care how we live. We try to pretend that. And Now, if uh, if you're someone who does not believe that God exists, um, you might feel like I'm trying to single you out and saying you're the worst of the worst because you're pretending that God doesn't exist. But actually, religious people do exactly the same thing, just a little bit different. The way that religious people hide is rather than trying to pretend that God doesn't exist or that he doesn't punish evil, is that we try to think as religious people, uh, religious people try to pretend that we can hide behind our good works. The first option robs us of any hope for justice. If there is no God who judges evil, then evil goes unpunished. Um, uh, Vince Gilligan, the creator of Breaking Bad, once said, um, I don't know whether or not there's a heaven, but there sure as hell had better be a hell because there is too much evil and oppression in the world that goes unpunished. And I can't believe that that's just the way that it is. There's got to be a final judgment. There's got to be a settling of the scales. But the second one, pretending that we can hide behind our good works, that robs us of something uh, even worse. That robs us of all love 
and traps us in a vicious cycle of comparison and arrogance and, and inadequacy. And that's why a couple of sermons ago, there's that passage that Paul says, we're saved by grace, lest anyone should boast. And that's why Jesus has to be the cornerstone of the temple. For us to be built together into this temple, for us to become a dwelling place of God, for there to be a dwelling place of God where we don't panic and hide every time we hear his voice. We have to have salvation by grace. We have to have God himself placing himself between us and his own judgment. His judgment has to stand or we have no hope. And we can't rest on our own works or we have no love. Uh, But if we have a Savior who does it all for us and himself is building us together as one, uh, then we're set free from both of those things. We're set free from needing to hide. We're set free from needing to build our own works. And then God can dwell with us. And we can be uh, built together as his family and as his household. Um, It's no accident uh, that this is all said in the context of this prayer. Uh, It's bookended by this prayer. The end of chapter 1 the end of chapter 3 are both prayers that we would know, that we'd be able to understand because it's a a heady thing. It's a wild thing to comprehend. Uh, We would know, he prays, that we would know what God's power is. And so let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful for these promises. Uh, We are grateful um, for what you have begun, for what you have accomplished on the cross of Christ. Um, We are grateful uh, for the knowledge um, that you are making us one, that all of our differences, all of our pettiness, all of our strife, is dying at the cross of Christ, that all of our racism, that all of our classism, that all of our fear, all of our anger is dying on the cross of Christ. And you are making us one. You are making us who we were always meant to be. You are transforming us and making us right and removing us from fear. We pray that you would teach us to know. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would strengthen our minds to comprehend it. In Jesus' name, amen.